Welcome back for part two of our special three-part Darwin Day edition of Scientific American Science Talk. I'm Steve Mursky. We'll continue with another presentation from the Darwin event last week, sponsored by the New York Society for Ethical Culture. John Tian is Associate Professor of Religion at Hofstra University. He's the author of the upcoming book, In the Name of God, The Evolutionary Origins of Religious Ethics and Violence. He talked about the study of religion from an evolutionary psychology perspective. I'm very pleased to have been invited uh, here today to help celebrate the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin. Uh, 2009 is a momentous year. It marks several milestones in human history. Uh, besides Darwin's birth, we just heard it's also the birth of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, it is the 150th anniversary of the publication of On the Origin of Species, clearly one of the most important books ever written. Perhaps uh, less well-known is that 2009 also marks the 150th anniversary of the birth of the great American philosopher John Dewey. Uh, that Dewey uh, came into the world the same year as Darwin's masterpiece uh, was a fact not lost on Dewey, who perhaps more than any other philosopher of his day recognized the significance of Darwin's evolutionary theory, not just for biology, but for philosophy and the study of humanity. John Dewey marked the 50th anniversary of the origins back in 1909 by writing an essay entitled The Influence of Darwin on Philosophy. As this is the 100th anniversary of that essay, I'm going to use it to see just how far Darwin's reach stretches. Uh, before turning to this, I also want to mention one other anniversary being marked this year. 2009 is also the 250th anniversary of the founding of the Arthur Guinness Brewery Company. And while Mr. Guinness did not write any philosophy, his, it would be unfair to deny he has had an impact on the academic world. <laughs> Charles Darwin saw clearly that his theory of evolution through natural selection held implications far beyond biology, and that in particular it clashed with dearly held and widely shared religious beliefs of his day. His concern for the religious controversy that was sure to come was at least part of the reason that he delayed publishing his ideas for 20 years. It also goes to explain his extreme caution in discussing the application of his ideas to humans. Uh, in the almost 500 pages of The Origin, Darwin mentions humans just once and almost in passing. Near the very end of the book, he suggests that as his ideas become further developed, light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. Darwin could afford to tread lightly on the issue of human evolution because he knew the implications of his works for humans would be lost on no one. And he was right. People immediately picked up on what evolution implied about humanity and its implications for religion were at the forefront of the controversies. A major clash between evolution and religion in Darwin's day is familiar to us today, uh, for it still rages today, as stunning as that may be. It is the incompatibility between an evolutionary account of human origins and a biblical account of human origins. We know all too well the argument from the opponents of evolution that an evolutionary account of humanity descending from a long line of pre-human animals through the process of natural selection uh, is seen as an assault on the biblical account of God making each creature separately, each according to its own kind, in six days, no more than 10,000 years ago. We must admit that the fear that evolution overthrows a literal understanding of Genesis is well-founded. Evolution does refute Genesis, understood literally. The creationists are right about at least this one thing. Well, actually, it's the only thing they get right. Uh, you cannot believe in Darwin, Darwinian evolution, and believe in a literal interpretation of Genesis. They are incompatible accounts. 
The situation is, in fact, much worse for creationists. Not only can you not believe in Darwinian evolution and Genesis, but you cannot believe in modern physics or astronomy or chemistry or archaeology or geology or paleontology, to name just a few, and a literal reading of Genesis. All of these sciences point to a dynamic and ancient universe. For creationism to be correct, all of these sciences must be wrong. And not just wrong in the details, fundamentally flawed. Right, that's a point that rarely gets into the discussions about whether creationism belongs in the scientific classroom. The case against a literal reading of the Bible is just so overwhelming that on an intellectual level, the evolution-creationism debate is just silly. Uh, if it were not for the political power uh, that creationists yield, wield in this country, it would be best just to ignore these people until they go away. However, because of the ability of religious fundamentalists to influence public school policy, we're forced to pay close attention to them. However, today, I want to focus not on the political battles between evolution and creationism, but on the deeper level of contacts between Darwinism and religion. What sometimes gets lost in the heated battles over creationism is that many religions and many religious people do not adhere to a literal interpretation of the Bible. The Catholic Church, for example, does not and has no doctrinal conflicts with Darwinism. This goes for many Protestant denominations as well. Most forms of Judaism have found little problem integrating Darwinian science into their religious worldview. The situation with Islam is more complicated, but suffice it to say that there have been Islamic voices also speaking up in favor of Darwinian evolution. In fact, it's interesting to note that the zealousness of the creationist campaign has produced a sort of backlash in certain circles, academic and scientific. It's now very popular to argue that there is no conflict between evolution and religion. That as long as one understands that evolution answers questions of an empirical nature and that religion answers questions of a moral or spiritual nature, there can be no conflict between the two. This led uh, the famed evolutionist and admitted atheist Stephen Jay Gould to advocate for what he called a respectful and loving concordat between science and religion. I believe that this position while politically expedient and perhaps strategically wise in the current religious environment, takes a superficial approach to both evolution and religion. Clearly, there are religious traditions that have serious problems with Darwin. We cannot get around that fact by uh, denying that those traditions are re legitimate religions. We may disagree with them, we may not respect them, but to millions of people, that is what religion means. And evolution does not fit into that view. There are conflicts between evolution and certain expressions of religion. So perhaps what people trying to patch things up between Darwin and God uh, ought to say is that there is no necessary conflict between Darwin and God. That's more accurate. It's more respectful of the diversity of religious outlooks. However, this does not fully recognize just how far Darwinian evolution reaches into the domain of religion. And that's what I want to look at today. In 1859, Darwin made a prediction in the conclusion of The Origin. He said, sounding ever so much the seer, in the distant future, I see open fields for far more important researches. Psychology will be based on a new foundation, that of the necessary acquirement of each mental power and capacity by gradation. This is the insight that so impressed John Dewey. In his 1909 essay, Dewey wrote that prior to Darwin, the impact of the new scientific method upon life, mind, and politics had been arrested. The gates of the garden of life were barred to the new ideas. The influence of Darwin 
resides in having conquered the phenomena of life for the principle of transition. That is, with Darwin, it was now possible to develop a truly scientific understanding of human psychology and human morality. And it's here, in evolutionary accounts of mind and moral, that Darwin may have his most significant influence on our understanding of religion. Darwin's prediction that psychology would someday be based on a new foundation is beginning, beginning excuse me, to come to fruition. Over the last several decades, evolutionary thinkers have laid the foundation for an evolutionary psychology. This discipline works with the premise that Darwin set out 150 years ago. The brain is a physical organ, and as such, it's been subject to the forces of natural selection just as much as any other part of our physical makeup. Therefore, our study of the brain must take into account what survival tasks humans needed to accomplish in our evolutionary past. Uh, given this, we should be able to detect cognitive and emotional tools that are designed to serve the demands of evolutionary competition. Researchers from a variety of disciplines have been using this approach for over 40 years to invest investigate human behavior and beliefs. There's now an impressive body of literature providing an evolutionary account of human sexuality, including mating and parenting strategies, cooperation, social organization, and morality. Most recently, over the past 15 to 20 years, many evolutionary theorists have turned their attention to religion. So the evolutionary study of religion is the most fascinating field. Uh, it's a relatively new field, and as such, it is subject to all the growing pains and the skepticism that new fields are prone to. However, in my view, the study of religion from the perspective of the cognitive sciences, of which evolutionary psychology is a foundational aspect, represents one of the most significant developments in the modern study of religion. Uh, clearly, the field is too complex and diverse to adequately present in a brief talk. But I'd like to give you a taste of how this field approaches religion, and then talk about what this might mean for religion. Evolutionary psychology views the brain as a collection of tools, of mental tools. Now, each of these serves a particular task that has been related to survival uh, or reproduction. One of the tools I want to talk about, and it's particularly important for the study of religion, is what is called an agency detection device. Agency detection device. Now, research shows and experience confirms that the human mind is very sensitive to detecting signs of agents working in the world. Now, by agents, I mean beings capable of acting with intention and purpose. For example, I am an agent. My actions and words here are intended to serve a purpose, to convey ideas to you. If one of you were to get up and walk out during my talk, uh, my immediate intuitive response would be to treat you as an agent. That is, I would interpret your actions as having an intention aimed at achieving some goal, or perhaps you needed to use the restroom, rather than seeing it as just random motions. Now, attributing agency to persons is not unusual. It's, in fact, the typical way we understand human behavior. But we do not simply detect agency when persons are involved. We do it with non-human animals also. For example, if your cat climbs on your lap and begins to purr, most likely you're going to see that it is acted with intention. Right? that it wants to be pet. Uh, this makes sense also because animals are agents too. Your cat climbing on your lap and purring likely does signal an intention to get you to pet him, even if that intention is not conscious. However, our detection of agency goes beyond animals. We regularly and intuitively attribute agency to inanimate objects all the time. While I was preparing this talk, my computer began to show signs of a virus. The program slowed down, pages disappeared, Files went missing. 
And all of this, of course, to make my life miserable. The stupid computer was out to get me. Now, I know, of course, that the computer was not out to get me. It was not trying to do anything because computers are not agents. The malfunctions can be explained by computer technology. The fact that it was having an impact on my work was merely a coincidence. I know this. But that is not how I instinctively responded. We naturally detect agency even when the source is not an agent. In fact, our agency detection device is so sensitive that not only do we detect agency when there's only inanimate objects around, we detect agency when there's no one or no thing around. Again, an example. Imagine you're lying in bed at night and you hear glass breaking in another part of your house. There are any number of explanations. Perhaps a tea, uh, tree branch broke a window. Perhaps a, a car, the, passing, the vibration of a passing car shook a, a glass off the counter. Or perhaps your cat knocked the bowl over. There are any numbers of explanations. But the odds are great that your intuitive response is that someone has done something. And perhaps there's an intruder in your house. That is, you will intuit agency. Humans do not need to actually see creatures, objects, act in order to detect agency. And there are very good evolutionary reasons for this. Agents are important parts of our world. They have intentions and the power to act on those intentions. And those intentions may be to do us harm. It's a common fact also that agents do not always have to signal their presence, right? That is, you cannot always wait until you see that there's an agent present before acting as if there is an agent present. With the example of the breaking glass. If you wait until you have adequate information to show that somebody has broken into your house, before you respond, you have wasted valuable time in acting to protect yourself and your family. Uh, when in doubt, the better strategy is to overreact rather than underreact. If you act as if the noise is caused by an intruder, you'll be better prepared to take appropriate action and protect your family. If it turns out that the noise was actually the cat, well, you've given yourself a scare, you've wasted some time, you've lost some sleep. On the other hand, if you act as if the noise were the result of wind, when it is actually an intruder, the consequences to you and your family may be quite dire. Our earliest ancestors lived in environments where they faced such uncertain yet urgent situations all the time. They were surrounded not only by dangerous predators, but by potentially hostile humans. They regularly faced situations in which underreacting, even once, could mean the end, not only for themselves, but for their children. The early human walking through the forest and hearing a rustling up ahead in the bushes has a crucial decision to make. It could merely be the wind, or it could be a tiger waiting to pounce. Those who waited for sufficient evidence of a tiger were more likely to end up tiger lunch. We are all descendants of people who, faced with such situations, said tiger and ran. Evolution favors those who are overly sensitive to agency. Well, I'm sure you can see where this is going. Humans have developed, as an evolutionary adaptation, a highly sensitive agency detection tool. When in doubt, our default position is to detect the presence of an agent, the more so in situations that are urgent and or dangerous. In our earliest environment, we regularly faced situations that were both urgent and dangerous, and in which there was no clear explanation for what was going on around us. In such situations, the human mind is designed to detect agency and to respond to the situation as if an agent were responsible. And it's important to note, this is not simply an intellectual decision. Right? The person who says tiger, sort of rustling in the bushes, is not merely making an intellectual decision. 
he or she is experiencing the fear that comes with facing a dangerous predator and reacts in a way that is appropriate to that danger. The fact that there may be no tiger does not change this. The situation, once interpreted as being faced with a predator, is experienced as real and in a deeply felt way whether or not the tiger exists. This deeply ingrained evolutionary strategy for responding to urgent yet uncertain situations is the genesis of belief in gods. The rustling in the bushes may be a tiger, but the rumbling in the sky, the violence of the thunder is not so easily explained, but still they cry out for an explanation. The workings of our agency detection device is not sufficient by itself to explain all of religion or even give a full account of belief in gods. It is but one tool in our evolved mental toolbox that works to generate such beliefs. Evolutionary theorists have identified a number of such mental tools, each of which contributes some piece to the picture that is religion. My own research focuses on evolutionary accounts of uh, moral psychology. The thesis of my work uh, is that the religious moral traditions, uh, for all their apparent diversity, are actually just various expressions of an underlying evolved moral psychology. That despite the religious position that these moral rules are given by God, they can also be explained as the end result of natural selection. So, what does this all mean for religion? For one, it means that the challenge presented by Darwin to religion goes well beyond simply requiring us to reinterpret some biblical passages. The evolutionary analysis of religion offers an account of how it is that humans come to believe in gods and how they come to believe the things they do about their gods. It could also offer an account of why people can be so sensitive to having their God beliefs challenged. In other words, evolutionary theory is now offering us a scientific inroad to our sacred beliefs and values, those areas supposedly reserved for religion. This poses a much greater challenge to religion than simply contradicting Genesis. Now, one may also question whether a Darwinian account of religion necessitates atheism. Richard Dawkins famously said that Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. And certainly, evolutionary theories of religion can serve as powerful weapons in the arsenal of atheism. However, I do not believe that accepting this evolutionary account of religion requires one to accept atheism. Curiously, one of the major fields in the evolutionary study of religion, Justin Barrett, identifies himself as a practicing Christian and claims that he has no problem reconciling his faith with his evolutionary understanding of religious belief. And he's not the only one to make such a claim. Now, rather than get into any specific arguments, I would like to conclude by suggesting what I see to be a way, a way, to reconcile evolution and religion. It has long been suggested that perhaps evolution is simply the means God has chosen uh, to execute his plans for creation. In response to evolutionary psychology, it has been proposed that if God wanted to be known by his creatures, then it makes sense that he would arrange evolution to design brains that would be able to perceive him. Now, this may be plausible to many, but I have to admit I find this particular strategy unconvincing. It works, it seems to me, to work with too anthropomorphic a conception of God. And anthropomorphism is clearly an evolved strategy for making sense of a confusing world. However, it may also be argued that what evolutionary accounts of religion are doing, it, what they do, is to uncover a 
a common human experience of the divine found beneath the diversity of religious traditions. That evolution suggests that despite the moral conflicts between religions, they were all striving in one way or another to give expression to a deeper and commonly shared moral sense. And perhaps this deeper source of our religious traditions is what people refer to as God. In this case, religion becomes the effort to bring out this common thread of our humanity, to find a deeper level of reality that establishes a true connection between people, to uncover the moral path that allows us to seek our good as members of a shared human community. Such a conception of religion would, in my view, fit comfortably with a Darwinian worldview. Now, there is, of course, already such a religious worldview. It's called humanism. And it is no coincidence that the American philosopher most deeply imbued with an evolutionary outlook would also be one of the greatest philosophers of humanism. What John Dewey recognized is that contrary to the fears of traditional religious believers, Charles Darwin's influence would not result in a moral deadening of the world. It would not rob life of its beauty or wonder, nor would it render existence meaningless. Rather, by fully integrating humans and human experience into the natural world, evolution would make that natural world more truly our home. That by undermining our faith in ancient and unchanging dogma, we would be made more fully involved in charting our own destinies. And that by providing a natural grounding for our most cherished values, evolution opens up the possibility of imbuing our natural existence with a sense of the sacred. As Darwin said of evolution, there's grandeur in this view of life. Now, whether or not this is considered a religion, such a view creates the conditions for developing what John Dewey called a common faith. Dewey argues that this humanistic faith has always been what is best in religion, but that it is too often lost in the heat of doctrinal battles. Now, how interesting it would be after all the animosity directed toward Charles Darwin from religious quarters for the last 150 years, if in the end, his greatest influence on religion turned out to be setting its better nature free. Thank you very much. This has been the second of our three-part Darwin Day series. Also, check out the Darwin In-Depth Report at our website, www.siam.com. And tune in for Part 3 on February 13th. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Mm-hmm.